Today's message is entitled, Redeemed in 2013. Now, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, Redeemed in 2013. You see, it's impossible for us to solve a problem when we do not know what the problem is. A year ago, this past summer, I was having problems with the air conditioning on my car. Uh, it would work most of the time. It was inconvenient. Uh, sometimes it would go out when you wanted to go out the least. I would find that it would go out when I needed to go to a funeral. And I'm all dressed up in a suit, and it's 90 degrees out, and my car is hot, the windows have been up, and, and I can't get it to cool down. Now, most of the time, it worked just fine, and it would go out. And so I asked a few people, what, what's wrong with my car? You know, I'm really not, I really don't know that much about engines and cars. And, and so I began to ask around, and someone says, you know, the problem is you're low on Freon. Well, that made sense to me, so I went to AutoZone and I bought a little Freon kit and, and hooked the hose up to the place that it said to hook the, the hose up to and put Freon in my car. Well, it seemed to cool a little bit better, but it was still would go on and off, on and off. And so I, you know, I thought, well, you know, it doesn't, it's on most of the time. And so I thought, I'll just deal with it through the summer, the rest of the summer, and then maybe next year I'll fix the problem. Well, it got hot again, and I thought, you know, I can't do this. I'm in a suit and a tie, and I'm drenched. I have to fix the problem. So I took the car to a mechanic. And the mechanic says, you know, the problem is that you're probably low on Freon. I said, I, I've heard that, and I put more Freon in it. He says, well, did you know what you were doing? And I said, well, maybe not. He said, well, why don't you just let me charge it, and then we'll see what the problem is. I said, okay, why don't you put more Freon in it? And so he put more Freon in the car. Well, I still had the problem. And after he worked on it for a long period of time, he said, you know what your problem is? He said, the problem is your compressor is going out. Well, that made sense to me. I said, well, how much does it cost to replace your compressor? And he said, well, probably about twelve to $1,300. Well, you know, I'm driving a 2003 Chevy Malibu. It's really not worth all that much. And, you know, there's a point where, you know, I could put so much money into this car, I'll never get it back out. And, and I don't, maybe I'll just make it through the summer. Well, I decided to get on the Internet. And I began to search 2003 Chevy Malibu air conditioning problems. And, and I saw this YouTube video come up, and, and it was a guy who has, was having the exact same problem that I was having. And all he did was take the, the cover off the switch that turned the air conditioning on and off. And he showed me exactly how to do it. And, and in 15 minutes, I took the cover off. I took a Q-tip swab and a little bit of alcohol, and I cleaned the metal around the connections there. And you know what? My air conditioning worked beautifully, and it cost me nothing. You see, the problem is we, we don't really know what the problem is, and it's true of us spiritually. The problem may be that you don't understand what the problem may be. You know, before my, my grandmother passed away, uh, she talked to us boys, my brother and I, and said, you know, I, 
I would rather give you my inheritance now. Now, she didn't have a whole lot. But she said, I'd like to give you and your brother $500 each. Well, I was pretty young and and a a youth pastor, and $500 was really quite a bit of money to me. And so I was looking forward to the day when she would give me this $500. Well, my cousin was going through a difficult time, and, and my grandmother understood that, and she had compassion on him. And so she told my brother and I, you know, I told you that I would give you this $500 each, but really your cousin needs it more than you do. And so I'm going to give him the $1,000 that I intended for you and your brother. Well, that was fine, and, and I understood. I understood his need was better, greater than mine. I had a full-time job. I was youth pastor. I was struggling to make ends meet, but you know, I understood that. It made sense to me. But, you know, time kind of went on, and I began to think in my mind, you know, I could do a lot of things with that $500. You know, there's a 100 things that I could, we, we could pay off a bill. And I began to start feeling bitter feelings towards my cousin. And he didn't make the decision. My grandmother made the decision. And I began to feel badly towards my grandmother. Now, she had every right and every privilege to do with her money whatever she wanted to do. But she promised that she was going to give it to us. We could use that money as well. And as I'm thinking these things, I begin to say to myself, Rex, what is the matter with you? Why would you allow such a small amount of money to become between you and your cousin? Why would you allow such a small amount of money to become between you and your grandmother? You see, the money was just a symptom to a greater problem. You see, we struggle in life with many things. And we ask ourselves, what's the matter with me? You may be one of those individuals that had a hard time keeping a job, a full-time job. And you ask yourself, I don't understand. What's the matter with me? Some of you are struggling in your marriages because of your self-centeredness. And and you ask yourselves, what's the matter with me? And your spouse says, if you don't get you fixed, if you don't do something about you, we're, we're through. But your relationship is not the problem. It's only a symptom to the bigger problem. Oh, you've seen it hundreds of times. He makes or she makes statements like, you never, you always, and, and it escalates. And you, re, you, can, you have no, respo- no other response but to feel attacked. And so you defend yourself. And you get on this crazy wheel. And all of a sudden there's this big argument that ensues and the whole evening is ruined and you ask yourselves what's a matter what's the matter with me what's the matter with us you see it's just a symptom to a bigger problem some of you struggle with possessions you, you know you have great credit card debt and you really can't afford those new, that new pair of shoes. And yet, I want those shoes. And you buy them and you ask yourself the question, what's the matter with me? Why can't I get this right? You struggle with relationships with your children. You struggle with relationships with your parents. 
Why, why can't I solve this problem? This morning, we're going to look at the problem based upon the explanation that Paul gives in the, in the book of Romans. And tonight, we're going to look at the solution. Kind of tricky, huh? This morning, we're going to look at the problem. We're going to take a clear look at what the problem is. And tonight, you're going to need to come back to the evening service to hear the solution. I'll give you a portion of the solution in the first service and the second service as well. So turn with me to Romans chapter 7. We're going to begin reading at verse 15. Romans chapter 7, begin reading at verse 15. This is a description of how Paul feels about the problem before he discovered the solution to man's dilemma. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. I do not understand what I do. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now, this law could be any law. It could be the biblical law. It could be the law of society. It, It could be your own internal law. You may not even be a religious person, but there's something in you that guides you on things that you should and should not do. Now, here's what I know about you. Here's what I know about me. You do not even consistently do what you know that you ought to do. And so you find yourself relating to Paul. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And we'll look more at the law later on. Here's what we ought to do. I I, I know I would be better off if I would do this. I, I know that I would be healthier if I would do this. I know that I would be a better husband. I know that I would be a better wife. I know that I would be a better child. I know that I'd be a better student if I would do these things. But there's another part of you that does what you should not ought to do. You see, it's like there's two of you. And there's this battle that rages within you. Let's look at Romans 7.18. For I have the desire to do what is good. It's in me. I have this desire to do what is good. But I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. So here's the question. Here's the question. Why don't we just do what we're supposed to? To do. Why do we struggle? Why do we get into arguments and fights? Why do we have a difficulty with our relationships? Well, let's go back to Romans chapter 5 and try to get an understanding of what the problem is. You see, it's hard to solve a problem when we don't understand what the problem is. 
But once we understand what the problem is, we can can address the problem. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, powerless, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, we were powerless in our flesh to do anything against with our nature. We'll look at that. Powerless to fix the problem. It doesn't matter how much self-control you have. It doesn't matter how many books you read. It only addresses the symptom to the greater problem. You see, we are powerless to bridge the gap between God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul says, you, Paul says, I am ungodly. We are ungodly. Now, let me explain that to you. You see, we often say, well, nobody's perfect. And if you were to say that God is perfect, then, then we are imperfect. Or if you change the preposition there to God is perfect, we are unperfect. Therefore, God is godly. And we are ungodly. We are ungodly. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, powerless over what? Christ died for the ungodly. Now, I know this is, this is deep stuff. It's hard for us to really get our minds around Romans sometimes, but stay with me. I, I hope to illustrate this for you. You see, you are ungodly. I want you to turn to somebody that you don't know in the room and and say to them, you are ungodly. Go ahead. Just one person. Somebody you didn't know. (laughs) You're ungodly. See, Christ makes it very, uh, in Romans, it's made very clear to us. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, every single one of us, are born in sin. And sin is ugly, it's powerful sin. It has power over us. Because of Adam's sin, all have sin. Because of Adam's sin, all are ungodly. This is who we were. We were born and sin. It is our nature. It's the problem. You know why a sixth grade boy who's just been the best boy and, and mom and dad say, I don't know what has got into him. He is just so belligerent. He talks back. He argues with his mother. He thinks he knows everything about everything. I, I don't know what's got into him. Well, I do. Sin. You see, it's his nature. We are all born in sin. The teenage girl who, who uh, gets in a fight with mom. Mom and the girl are just alike. And they begin to argue and fight and, and it escalates. And, and they don't want it to be like that, but it's like that. And, and, and you say, I don't know what happened to her. 
Well, I do. It's her nature. You see, the Scripture is very clear. We are ungodly. This is who we were before Christ entered our lives. We are all sinners. Every single one of us are born in sin. We are ungodly. Romans 5, 7 says, Barely, rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. Think about that. Christ himself, the creator of the universe, died for you. Why? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. While we continued in our sins, Christ died for us. Who, who would do that? Who would die? Oh, I, I can understand someone dying for a righteous person, but who would die for a sinner? Who would die for someone that obviously doesn't love you or care about you? And yet the Scripture says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered, through the world, entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in the same way death came to all men, because all sinned. Because of Adam's sin, sin entered the world. Because of Adam's choice, death came to all men. And then the scripture says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, because of Adam's sin, all die. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. Because Adam sinned, all are born in sin. And so we may have a two-year-old that was just this beautiful little child running around, and all of a sudden at two, we say, I don't know what's gotten into her. And we say, I do. You see, it's, it's our nature. And, and we, we, we talk about the problem, and yet the problem is this sin nature. What do we do with this sin nature? I'm going to put that right there. Hopefully it'll stay up. Well, let's look on. Adam. When we are born, uh, we are born in sin. It's, it's true of you, it's true of me. I, I, I was born in sin. Debbie? Well, we'll put Debbie here, right here for right now. <laughs> My kids, they'd tell you they were born in sin. My grandkids, they'd tell you, born in sin. Billy Graham, he'd tell you, born in sin. Mother Teresa... She was born in sin. Poor Hewitt. Godly saint. Grandma. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Precious child of God. Just as sweet, as sweet as she could be. Born in sin. Every single one of us. We were born in sin. It's, it's our nature. And see, the problem is we don't really understand what the problem is. The problem is not the argument. The problem isn't the fact of our greed. 
The problem is sin. Did you see the scripture where it said we were powerless? You see, in our flesh, we're powerless to do anything about this sin nature. Even Debbie. Sweet, sweet Debbie. Born in sin. Every one of us. Born in sin. The problem is that we are born in sin. Just therefore, just, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all have sinned. Just as sin entered the world through one man, death through sin. You see, what is true of Adam is, is true of you. And you have no power. Over sin. We can try to do right in the flesh, but we will fail. All the law does is point out to us the fact that we fail at trying to live out our life in our own strength. We will always fail. And sin not only kills us in death, and Adam's sin all died, but it also kills our relationships. You see, our relationships are decaying. Our, our finances, our marriage, it's our nature. We often say, I don't know what the problem is. Well, the problem is sin. Romans 5, 14 says, but the gift of God, the gift of God is not like the trespass. What is the trespass? Of course, he's talking about Adam's trespass of eating the fruit in the garden. The act of one man in the garden brought condemnation to all. For if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? You see, when Christ died on a cross for you and for me provisionally, when he died on the cross, he made provisions for us to have eternal life with him. But he also provided for us an opportunity to live not above sin, but in him. And we're going to look at that in a little more detail here as we go through this this morning. Christ Provisionally died for you, but experientially when we accept Christ as our Savior and Lord, we become in Christ. I'll start with Debbie. When I accept Christ as my Savior and Lord, I become in Christ. And what is true of Christ becomes true of me. You see, in my old nature, what was true of Adam, death, is true of me. Now what is true of Christ becomes true of me. Christ has defeated death, hell, and the grave. And no longer does sin reign over me. Sin is no longer my master. Why? Because when Christ died on the cross, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. He defeated sin. And sin is no longer our master. Now, for many of us, we accept Christ as our Savior and Lord, and sin still wants to reign in us because we we got accustomed to this. 
Adam way of life, living in the flesh. And, and a lot of times we don't fully understand what it means to live in Christ. But what's true of Christ is true of us. You see, we are the redeemed in 2013. We are His children. We are His heirs. And He, and he has defeated sin. And what is true of Christ becomes true of us. But the gift of God is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Not just some, but all. Provisionally, Christ has died for all. But we must make a choice whether we to follow or to continue to live in the flesh. It's our choice whether we accept Christ or not. He offers us that opportunity. Verse 16 of chapter 5. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. You see, in Adam, we are all condemned. We all deal with the guilt of this decaying body. We all deal with the reality that sin destroys our relationships. We all deal with the reality that in Adam, we have no power. Oh, we, we can have self-will. We can have self-determination. We can read a lot of good books and we can be good people. And there are a lot of good people in the church who do not understand what it means to be in Christ. What it means to have a new identity, a, a fresh start, a new beginning. Who live out their faith and yet it's a battle for them. Because they haven't settled the question. They, they deal with the problem, but only the symptom of the problem. You see, the problem is we are born in sin. And yet Christ came to defeat sin. Let's look on. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the man's sin. One man's sin, Adam. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Just as if you had never sinned. When we ask Christ in our heart and life, it's just as if we had never sinned. The old is gone. The, the new has come. We've been given a fresh start, a new beginning. You see, when we start to live our lives and the understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us on Calvary, positionally, it changes everything. You know, when I was first a teenager, um, I became a Christian when I was 17. And uh, I, when I accepted Christ, I knew the Christians didn't swear, and so I, I tried to quit swearing. All the m words would still come to my mind. Uh, I knew Christians didn't do this, Christians didn't do that. And I tried to do all those things that first year. I was living really under the law, but the law was powerless. I, I didn't understand my position in Christ. I didn't understand what was true of Christ was true of me. That I had a new identity. 
You see, I was struggling that first year. I know the good I ought to do, but I do not do it. It's this whole issue. Lord, what's wrong with me? But the light bulb came on. And I realized it wasn't my flesh or my personal self-discipline, but it was allowing Christ to live in me and through me. You see, I, I, that first year, I really struggled with Christians don't do this, Christians don't do that. And, and finally, someone said to me, you know, it's not about what we don't do, but about what we do. It's about who we are, about whose we are. You see, the old is gone, the, the new has come. Verse 17. For if the trespass by the one man, death reigns through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man? Reign in life through the one man. Now this is not just talking about heaven. Oh, it, it's part of what we are have in Christ We have the promise of eternity. But it's also this reigning. You see, Satan has been defeated. And sin no longer has power over us. I want you to say with me, sin is not my master. Let's repeat that. Sin is not my master. You see, Satan no longer has authority over us. He's been defeated. And, and, but we, we don't, it's hard for us to really understand that. Because we've lived this way in the flesh for so long, it's hard for us to understand what it means to live in the Spirit. And allow the Holy Spirit to change us, to renew us, to mold us. But let me tell you something. When you start living and are sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your lives, you'll look back. And people will say things to you like, you're not the same person you used to be. And it happens as we begin to realize who we are in Christ Jesus. For by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace... And the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man. Not just in heaven, but reign in life. You see, sin is not my master. Oh, we need to address the problems. But we need to understand what the problem really is. The problem is we want to be the Lord of our own lives. And it's hard for us to surrender everything, to take up our cross and daily follow Him. But when we die to self, and we're going to talk about this a lot more tonight, the solution, and live for Him. And when we begin to understand who we are in Christ, and we realize that sin no longer has power and authority over us, oh, it still tempts us, it still... 
struggles. I mean, when I was 30, I struggled with certain things. When I was 20 and 30 years of age, I struggled with things that I don't struggle with now. Some of you say, you know, I used to be, I used to really struggle. I, I, had, a, I had a difficult time cheating on tests. I had a difficult time writing papers and not just plagiarizing. I, I really struggled at this point, but I don't struggle with that anymore. It may be that you're not in school anymore. I, I, but as you go, you know, as you get older, I mean, there's always struggles, aren't there? And we need to remind ourselves who we are in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The, the new has come. Paul says there's a fundamental change in us. I want you to imagine, if you will, that you are a child abandoned on the streets of New York. Your immigrant parents died on a ship on their way to America. You have no money. You have no relatives. You can't speak English. You're left all by yourself to fend for yourself. As many as 30,000 orphans found themselves exactly in that predicament in 1850. They slept in alleyways. They would huddle together for warmth. They would find cardboard boxes to sleep in. Some would sleep in steel drums. They, to survive, the boys would steal. Some would catch rats to eat. They would rummage through the garbage cans looking for anything that they could possibly eat to survive. Girls would sometimes work as panel thieves for prostitutes, slipping their tiny little hands through a curtain or an open space and stealing a wallet or a stop or a watch of someone who was preoccupied. Immigrants were flooding New York and, and no one had time for these orphans. No one had the time or the money to take care of them. No one, that is, except for Charles Loring Brace, a 26-year-old minister who was overwhelmed by the plight of these orphans. So he had a plan, the orphan train. The idea was simple. Pack hundreds of children headed west towards new homes. They would announce ahead of time that children are coming west. Would you adopt a child as your own? And they would chug west day in and day out. By the time the last orphan train left the station in 1929, over 100,000 children were adopted into new families, new homes. Two orphans from such trains became governors. Another became a United States congressman. Still another, a Supreme Court justice. Imagine. Imagine what it would have been like to defend, defend for yourself just for your basic needs and then to be taken in by a kindly minister who put you in a tr- on a train and heads you west. Three days later, you're selected by a kindly middle-aged couple living in Michigan who introduced themselves as Mr. and Mrs. Henry Ford. You're driven in an automobile to the largest house you've ever seen in your life. And they quietly explain to you that you are now part of their family. 
that everything that they have is yours. In Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We, we have been adopted into his family. And what is true of Christ is true of us. And we'll talk about this more tonight. In Christ, the Scripture tells us in Philippians, Paul says, I, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and to participate in His suffering, becoming like Him in His death and somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to understand who Christ is and I want to understand the power of His resurrection. And then he says, not that I've already obtained all this, I've already been made, made perfect or already arrived at the goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You see, Paul struggled with this Adam thing. But I take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. Paul also says we are to work out our salvation. What does that mean? It means to come to grips with what it means to be in Christ. What it means to be not just a follower of Christ, but in Him. You see, what is true of Christ is true of us. One more scripture out of Romans. It's found in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. It says, Do you not know that when you offer yourselves to someone as an obedient slave, you are a slave to the one you obey? Whether you are a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Have you asked Christ into your heart and life? If you have, what has come true, what is true of Him is true of you. You have a new identity. The old is gone. The new has come. But many of us, we ask Christ in our heart and lives, and we live like we're still slaves to sin. But we're not. For in Christ, we are a slave to righteousness. And what is true of Christ becomes true of us. And it's not about what we don't do. It's about what we do. It's about who we are in Him. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. This morning, Lord, we address the problem, our sin nature. The Scripture is very clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the problem is, Lord, we, we, we fail to understand that. Many of us accept you as our Savior and Lord, and yet we live as if we're still in Adam. We live as if we have the old nature. But in Christ, in Christ, everything that's true of you becomes true of us. Help us, Lord, to be men and women in 2013 who live as the redeemed who live as one who understands your love, your grace, and your mercy, and how you want to extend that love and grace and mercy to the world around us. I pray, Lord, you bless those who have come today, and we ask all this in your wonderful name. Amen.
I want to encourage you to come back this evening to hear more about the solution to the problem of sin. God bless you. You're dismissed.